This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear the story Clara by Roberto Bolaño. She once told me that there were three Claras in her soul, a little girl, an old crone enslaved by her family, and a young woman, the real Clara, who wanted to get out of that city forever. The story was chosen by Francisco Goldman, whose novel Say Her Name was excerpted in The New Yorker in 2011. Hi, Frank. Hi, Deborah. When we first talked about doing a podcast, the first two writers who came to your mind were Bolaño and Borges. Why those two in particular? Is there a connection between them for you? There's a huge connection between them. Bolaño worshipped Borges. He has a wonderful line in one of his interviews where he says, I could live under a table reading Borges. (laughs) A famous Spanish critic said of Savage Detectives that this was the kind of novel... Borges would have written if Borges wrote novels. And people were so puzzled by that at first because Savage Detectives, this sprawling, multi-voiced, sex-obsessed, dirty novel, (laughs) you know, about young people in Mexico City, you know, terse, seemingly cold, seemingly sexless Borges, right? But Borges had this, as my late wife, Aura Estrada, wrote in her wonderful essay called uh, No Direction Home, Borges Bolaño and the Return of the Epic, mm-hmm. right? Borges, when he idealized the novel, it was like he loved the kind of open-ended epic form, mm-hmm. right? And and thought the epic should return. And if you look at it, the Savage Detectives is in fact an epic. You know, and a lot no, of it turns on very fine points of you know of, of intellectual discussion in the way that that Borges did. Absolutely too, yeah. right? It, I mean, so much of it is. It's literature obsessed, and and, yeah. and 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 he yeah he manages to turn the very private, desperate, and desperate's a key word in Bolaño always yeah search for a, you know a way to become a writer into something as as martial and brave and adventurous as you know <laughs> Homer and Achilles right. and right you know. well Bolaño died in in two thousand three at the age of fifty and he wasn't very well known in the English-speaking world at that point. He became much better known a few years later when he was started to be widely translated. Yeah. He was a big figure in Spanish-speaking countries before that. Had you had you already read him in Spanish? I had read him. I remember the first night I heard about him, sitting around, drinking late into the night with a bunch of young Latin American writers in Mexico City. But somehow I didn't get to him until my wife, Aura, was, mm-hmm. like I just said, a huge... You know, for her and her friends, Bolaño was everything, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she came from the UNAM, that public university that is such an important setting in a couple of his novels. And he, this was the guy who was writing about them and her city in, in a way that she and her friends so related to. I remember her saying once that the first glorious 100-page stretch of the Savage Detectives written in the young poetry student's voice was to her and her friends what perhaps something like uh, Holden Caulfield Right. You know, Captain the Rye, where it had been in the United States, to people like me. And the first time I read him, we went to the beach. And one setting, she gave me uh, Estrella Distante, Distant Star. Mm-hmm. And I just sat down and read it. I didn't move from my beach towel for about three hours. I just tore through it and just couldn't believe it. And then on our mm-hmm. honeymoon, which is, is really crazy, in our honeymoon, believe it or not, I read 2666. And... uh That's still one of the great reading experiences of my life. 
Now, Clara is kind of a, a, a love story, or it's a story of the, the one who got away. Yeah. Do you think that it's characteristic of Bolaño's writing, or is this... Well, it's not uncharacteristic. You yeah. know, in, in Bolaño, there's this, always this kind of desperate search for love, right, and it getting away, and always this almost painful nostalgia for youth. I think he lived his youth very intensely, and so he has this particularly wonderful way of evoking lost youth. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a kind of morbid quality to the story, which is very Bolaño. You can sort of feel that it's death-haunted from the first page almost, which is very characteristic, and it's sort of the classic Bolaño voice, mm-hmm. but a different persona, slightly different persona is behind the story. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. Now here's Francisco Goldman reading Clara by Roberto Bolaño. She had big breasts, slim legs, and blue eyes. That's how I like to remember her. I don't know why I fell madly in love with her, but I did. And at the start, I mean for the first days, the first hours, it all went fine. Then Clara returned to the city where she lived, in the south of Spain. She'd been on vacation in Barcelona, and everything began to fall apart. One night I dreamed of an angel. I walked into a huge, empty bar and saw him sitting in a corner with his elbows on the table and a cup of milky coffee in front of him. She's the love of your life, he said, looking up at me, and the force of his gaze, the fire in his eyes, threw me right across the room. I started shouting, waiter, waiter, then opened my eyes and escaped from that miserable dream. Other nights I didn't dream of anyone, but I woke up in tears. Meanwhile, Clara and I were writing to each other. Her letters were brief. Hi, how are you? It's raining. I love you. Bye. At first, those letters scared me. It's all over, I thought. Nevertheless, after inspecting them more carefully, I reached the conclusion that her epistolary concision was motivated by a desire to avoid grammatical errors. Clara was proud. She couldn't write well, and she didn't want to let it show, even if it meant hurting me by seeming cold. She was 18 at the time. She had quit high school and was studying music at a private academy and drawing with a retired landscape painter. But she wasn't all that interested in music, and it was pretty much the same with painting. She liked it, but couldn't get passionate about it. One day, I received a letter informing me, in her usual terse fashion, that she was going to take part in a beauty contest. My response, which filled three double-sided pages, was an extravagant paean to her calm beauty the sweetness of her eyes, the perfection of her figure, etc. The letter was a triumph of bad taste, and when I had finished it, I wondered whether or not I should send it, but in the end I did. A few weeks went by before I heard from her. I could have called, but I didn't want to intrude, and also at the time I was broke. Clara came in second in the contest and was depressed for a week. Surprisingly, she sent me a telegram, which read, Second place, stop. Got your letter. Stop. Come and see me. A week later, I took a train bound for the city where she lived, the first one leaving that day. Before that, of course, I mean after the telegram, we had spoken on the phone, and I had heard the story of the beauty contest a number of times. It had had a big impact on Clara, apparently. So I packed my bags, and as soon as I could, got a train, and very early the next morning, there I was in that unfamiliar city. I arrived at Clara's apartment at 9.30 after having a coffee at the station and smoking a few cigarettes to kill some time. A fat woman with messy hair opened the door 
And when I said I had come to see Clara, she looked at me as if I were a lamb on its way to slaughter. For a few minutes, they seemed extraordinarily long at the time, and thinking the whole thing over later on, I realized that in fact they were. I sat and waited for Clara in the living room, a living room that seemed welcoming for no special reason, overly cluttered but welcoming and full of light. When Clara made her entrance, it was like the apparition of a goddess. I know it was a stupid thing to think, and it's a stupid thing to say, but that's how it was. The following days were pleasant and unpleasant. We saw a lot of films, almost one a day. We made love. I was the first guy that Clara had slept with, which seemed incidental or anecdotal, but in the end, it would cost me dearly. We walked around. I met Clara's friends. We went to two horrific parties, and I asked her to come and live with me in Barcelona. Of course, at that stage, I knew what her answer would be. After a month, I took a night train back to Barcelona. I remember it was a terrible trip. Soon after that, Clara explained in a letter, the longest one she ever sent me, why she couldn't go on. I was putting her under intolerable pressure by suggesting that we live together. It was all over. After that, we talked three or four times on the phone. I think I also wrote her a letter full of insults and declarations of love. Once, when I was traveling to Morocco, I called her from the hotel where I was staying in Algeciras, and that time we were able to have a civilized conversation. At least she thought it was civilized, or I did. Years later, Clara told me about the parts of her life I had missed out on. And then, years after that, both she and some of her friends told me her life story all over again, starting from the beginning or from the point where we split up. Since I was a minor character, it didn't make any difference to them, or to me, really, although that wasn't so easy to admit. Predictably, not long after the end of our engagement, I know engagement is hyperbolic, but it's the best word I can find, Clara got married, and the lucky man was, logically enough, one of the friends I had met in my first trip to her city. But before that, she had psychological problems. She used to dream about rats. At night she would hear them in her bedroom, and for months, the months leading up to her marriage, she had to sleep on the sofa in the living room. I'm guessing those damned rats disappeared after the wedding. So Clara got married, and the husband, Clara's dear husband, surprised everyone, even her. After one or two years, I'm not sure exactly, Clara told me, but I've forgotten, they split up. It wasn't an amicable separation. The guy shouted, Clara shouted, she slapped him, he responded with a punch that dislocated her jaw. Sometimes when I'm alone and can't get to sleep but don't feel up to switching on the light, I think of Clara, who came in second in that beauty contest, with her jaw hanging loose, unable to get it back in place on her own, driving to the nearest hospital with one hand on the wheel and the other supporting her jawbone. I'd like to find it funny, but I can't. What I do find funny is her wedding night. She'd had an operation for hemorrhoids the day before, so I guess she was still a bit groggy. Or maybe not. I never asked her if she was able to make love with her husband. I think they'd done it before the operation. Anyway, what does it matter? All these details say more about me than they do about her. In any case, Clara split up with her husband a year or two after the wedding and started studying. She couldn't go to a university because she hadn't finished high school, but she tried everything else, photography, painting again. I don't know why, but she always thought she could be a good painter, music, typing, IT... 
All those one-year diploma courses supposedly leading to job opportunities that desperate young people keep jumping at or falling for. And although Clara was happy to have escaped from a husband who beat her, deep down she was desperate. The rats came back, and the depression and the mysterious illnesses. For two or three years she was treated for an ulcer until the doctors finally realized that there was nothing wrong, at least not in her stomach. Around that time she met Luis, an executive. They became lovers, and he persuaded her to study something related to business administration. According to Clara's friends, she had at last found the love of her life. Before long, they were living together. Clara got a job in an office, a legal firm, or some kind of agency. A really fun job, Clara said, without a hint of irony. And her life seemed to be on track for good this time. Luis was a sensitive guy. He never hit her. And cultured. He was, I believe, one of the two million Spaniards who bought the complete works of Mozart in installments. And patient, too. He listened. He listened to her every night and on the weekends. Clara didn't have much to say for herself, but she never got tired of saying it. She wasn't fretting over the beauty contest anymore, although she did bring it up from time to time. Now it was all about her periods of depression, her mental instability, the pictures she wanted to paint but hadn't. I don't know why they didn't have children. Maybe they didn't have time, although according to Clara, Luis was crazy about kids. She used her time to study and listen to music, Mozart, but other composers too later on, and take photographs, which she never showed anyone. In her own obscure and useless way, she tried to defend her freedom, tried to learn. At the age of 31, she slept with a guy from the office. It was just something that happened, not a big deal, at least for the two of them, but Clara made the mistake of telling Luis. The fight was appalling. Luis smashed a chair or a painting he had bought, got drunk, and didn't talk to her for a month. According to Clara, from that day on, nothing was the same. In spite of the reconciliation, in spite of their trip to a town on the coast, a rather sad and dull trip, as it turned out. By the time she was 32, her sex life was almost non-existent. Shortly before she turned 33, Luis told her that he loved her, he respected her, he would never forget her, but for some months he had been seeing someone from work who was divorced and had children, a nice understanding woman, and he was planning to go and live with her. On the surface, Clara took the break up pretty well. It was the first time someone had left her. But a few months later, she lapsed into depression again and had to take some time off work and undergo psychiatric treatment, which didn't help much. The pills she was given inhibited her sexually, although she did make some willful but unsatisfactory attempts to sleep with other men, including me. She started talking about the rats again. They wouldn't leave her alone. When she got nervous, she would constantly go to the bathroom. The first night we slept together, she must have got up to pee ten times. She talked about herself in the third person. In fact, she once told me that there were three Clatas in her soul, a little girl, an old crone enslaved by her family, and a young woman, the real Clara, who wanted to get out of that city forever, who wanted to paint and take photos and travel and live. For the first few days after we got back together, I feared for her life. Sometimes I wouldn't even go out shopping because I was scared of coming back and finding her dead. But as the days went by, my fears gradually faded, and I realized, or perhaps conveniently convinced myself, 
that Clara wasn't going to take her life. She wasn't going to throw herself off the balcony of her apartment. She wasn't going to do anything. Soon after that, I left her. But this time, I decided to call her every so often and stay in touch with one of her friends who could fill me in if only now and then. That's how I came to know a few things that might have been easier not to know. Stories that did nothing for my peace of mind. The kind of news an egotist should always take care to avoid. Clara went back to work. The new pills she was taking had done wonders for her outlook. And, shortly afterward, management, perhaps to pay her back for such a long absence, transferred her to a branch in another Andalusian city, though not very far away. She moved, started going to the gym... At 34, she was no longer the beauty I had known when I was 17 and made new friends. That's how she met Paco, who was divorced like her. Before long, they were married. At first, Paco would tell anyone willing to listen what he thought of Clara's photos and paintings. And Clara thought that Paco was intelligent and had good taste. As time passed, however, Paco lost interest in Clara's aesthetic efforts and wanted to have a child. Clara was 35 and at first she wasn't keen on the idea, but she gave in, and they had a child. According to Clara, the child satisfied all her yearnings. That was the word she used. According to her friends, she was getting steadily worse, whatever that meant. On one occasion, for reasons irrelevant to this story, I had to spend a night in Clara's city. I called her from my hotel, told her where I was, and arranged to meet her the following day. I would have preferred to see her that night, but after our previous encounter, Clara regarded me, and perhaps with good reason, as a kind of enemy, so I didn't insist. She was almost unrecognizable. She had put on weight, and in spite of the makeup, her face looked worn, not so much by time as by frustration, which surprised me, since I'd never really thought that Clara aspired to anything. And if you don't aspire to anything, how can you be frustrated? Her smile had also undergone a transformation. Before it had been warm and slightly dumb, the smile of a young lady from a provincial capital, but it had become a mean, hurtful smile, and it was easy to read the resentment, rage, and envy behind it. We kissed each other on the cheeks like a pair of idiots and then sat down. For a while, we didn't know what to say. I was the one who broke the silence. I asked about her son. She told me he was at daycare and then asked me about mine. He's fine, I said. We both realized that, unless we did something, the meeting was going to become unbearably sad. How do I look? Clara asked. It was as if she were asking me to slap her. Same as ever, I replied automatically. I remember we had a coffee, then went for a walk along an avenue lined with plane trees, which led directly to the station. My train was about to leave. We said goodbye at the door of the station, and that was the last time I saw her. We did, however, talk on the phone before she died. I used to call her every three or four months. I had learned from experience not to touch on personal or intimate matters, a bit like sticking to sports when chatting with strangers in bars. So we talked about her family, which in those conversations remained as abstract as a cubist poem, or her son's school, or her job. She was still at the same office, and over the years, she'd got to know all about her colleagues and their lives, and all the problems the executives were having. Those secrets gave her an intense and perhaps excessive pleasure. On one occasion, I tried to get her to say something about her husband, 
but she clammed up at that. You deserve the best, I told her. That's strange, Clara replied. What's strange, I asked. It's strange that you should say that, you of all people, she said. I quickly tried to change the subject, claimed I was running out of coins. I've never had a phone of my own, and never will. I always called from a public phone booth. Hurriedly said goodbye and hung up. I realized I couldn't face another argument with Clara. I couldn't listen to her working up another one of her endless justifications. One night not long ago, she told me she had cancer. Her voice was as cold as ever, that voice in which she always recounted her life with the detachment of a bad storyteller, putting exclamation marks in all the wrong places and passing over what she should have gone into, the parts where she could have cut to the quick. I remember asking her if she had already been to see a doctor, as if she had diagnosed the cancer herself or with Paco's help. Of course, she said. At the other end of the line, I heard something like a croak. She was laughing. We talked briefly about our children. Then, she must have been feeling lonely or bored, she asked me to tell her something about my life. I made up something on the spot and said I'd call her back the following week. That night I slept very badly. I had one nightmare after another and woke up suddenly, shouting, convinced that Clara had lied to me. She didn't have cancer. Something was happening to her for sure, the way things had been happening for the past 20 years, little fucked up things, all full of shit and smiles, but she didn't have cancer. It was five in the morning. I got up and walked to the Paseo Maritimo with the wind at my back, which was strange because the wind usually blows in from the sea and hardly ever in the opposite direction. I didn't stop until I got to the phone booth next to one of the biggest cafes on the Paseo. The terrace was empty. The chairs were chained to the tables. A little way off, Right by the sea, a homeless guy was sleeping on a bench with his knees drawn up, and every now and then he shuddered as if he were having bad dreams. My address book contained only one other number in Clara's city. I called it. After a long time, a woman's voice answered. I said who I was, but suddenly found I couldn't say anything more. I thought she'd hang up, but I heard the click of a lighter and smoke rushing in through lips. Are you still there, the woman asked. Yes, I said. Have you talked to Clara? Yes, I said. Did she tell you she had cancer? Yes, I said. Well, it's true. All the years since I had met Clara suddenly came tumbling down on top of me. Everything my life had been, most of it nothing to do with her. I don't know what else the woman said at the other end of the line, hundreds of miles away. I think I began to cry in spite of myself, like in the poem by Ruben Darío. I fumbled in my pockets for cigarettes, listened to fragments of stories, doctors, operations, mastectomies, discussions, different points of view, deliberations, the activities of a Clara I couldn't know or touch or help, not now. A Clara who could never save me now. When I hung up, the homeless guy was standing about five feet away, I hadn't heard him approaching. He was very tall, too warmly dressed for the season, and he was staring at me as if he were nearsighted or worried I might make a sudden move. I was so sad I didn't even get scared, although afterward, walking back through the twisting streets of the town center, I realized that seeing him, I had forgotten Clara for an instant, for the first time, and only the first. We talked on the phone quite often after that, 
Some weeks I called her twice a day. Our conversations were short and stupid, and there was no way to say what I really wanted to say. So I talked about anything, the first thing that came into my head, some nonsense I hoped would make her smile. Once I got sentimental and tried to summon up days gone by, but Clara put on her icy armor, and I soon got the message and gave up on nostalgia. As the date of her operation approached, my calls became more frequent. Once I talked with her son, another time with Paco. They both seemed well, they sounded well, at least not as nervous as I was. Though I'm probably wrong about that. Certainly wrong, in fact. Everyone's worried about me, Gladys said one afternoon. I thought she meant her husband and her son, but everyone included many more people, more than I could imagine. Everyone. The day before she was to go into the hospital, I called in the afternoon. Paco answered. Clara wasn't there. No one had seen her or heard from her in two days. From Paco's tone of voice, I sensed that he suspected she might be with me. I told him straight up, she's not here, but that night I hoped with all my heart that she would come to my apartment. I waited for her with the lights on and finally fell asleep on the sofa and dreamed of a very beautiful woman who was not Clara, a tall, slim woman with small breasts, long legs, and deep brown eyes, who was not and never would be Clara, a woman whose presence obliterated Clara, reduced her to a poor, lost, trembling, 40-something-year-old. She didn't come to my apartment. The next day I called Paco, and two days after that I called again. There was still no sign of Clara. The third time I called Paco, he talked about his son and complained about Clara's behavior. Every night I wonder where she could be, he said. From his voice and the turn the conversation was taken, I could tell that what he needed from me or someone, anyone, was friendship. But I was in no state to provide him with that consolation. That was Clara by Roberto Bolaño, which was translated by Chris Andrews and published in The New Yorker in 2008. The story can also be found in The Return, a collection of Bolaño stories translated by Andrews and published by New Directions. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Frank, this story seems almost entirely plot-driven. Almost every paragraph has some new development in Clara's life. Why do you think that this narrator doesn't slow it down and stop and reflect on these things? Why is there this sort of breathless and then this and then this and then this quality to it? Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I love about it. When you read this story, it's like eavesdropping on somebody on a train. 
You know, you're, someone's telling a story a mm-hmm. few seats away. And as you're reading it, you're just catching snatches of it, you know. It also almost sounds like one of those sort of jazz blues songs where the singer is kind of whispering to himself, right? You can almost, mm-hmm. or maybe even in mm-hmm. a kind of almost Tom Waitsy sort of voice. But it has sort of the tone of a late night insomniac reminiscence, you know. And I think. That's kind of really honest quality about the tone. It's it's not trying to share and show memories to the reader in the way, mm-hmm. say, they might teach in a typical creative writing program. It's kind of doing the opposite, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And yet, that gives it so much of it if its power. It has some some feeling of like, this is for me. I'm telling this for me, and yet you can listen. It's not for nothing, by the way, that he was such a fan of Ray Carver because mm-hmm. Carver also opens up these. mental spaces for your imagination where you have to do all the work. And from Mm -hmm. the first paragraph on, right, where he says in the first paragraph, um, I fell madly in love with her. And at the start, I mean, for the first days, for the first hours, it all went fine. (laughs) Right? And that's all he tells you. And so you as the reader stop and go, okay, what's that mean? The first hours, you go back into your own memories, the first hours of falling in love. Eventually you kind of get the feeling you know exactly what he means and you sort of color it all in yourself. Yeah. Well, he has that line where he says, uh, you know, all these details say more about me than they do about her, which you know is true. But what does it say about him that what he thinks about That's kind of uh, are te- her hemorrhoids yeah. or yeah. her driving to the hospital with her jaw hanging yeah. down and holding it on? These sort of And his egotism. comic says, images of her yeah. misery. I mean, that gets kind of to the heart of the story. The story kind of turns on him several times. That beautiful moment when he says... Clara, you deserve the best. And she says, that's really strange coming from you. Right? <laughs> yeah. And he gets all nervous and tries to rush past the conversation. So the question is constantly kind yeah. of putting the focus back on him in a very hidden way. And his egotism gets referred to. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain way in which he's both doesn't want to share, you know, feels very possessive of this fraught, golden moment in his youth with this kind of tormented woman but really what he most wants from her is youth there's almost something draculean about it right. you know so that the yeah. end when he when he has that dream when she's dying he dreams of this very beautiful young woman and he goes and she obliterated her what yeah. was her? she was just now this 40 something suffering person also this also there's an, another quality of the story too is the sense of mystery in it all the sort of You know, who is she finally? Yeah. Right? And yet he's so obsessed with her and tracks her through the years and has a great affection for her. But Right. But he seems obsessed with her mediocrity. You know, he's obsessed. He paints a portrait of this very banal person yeah. who thinks she wants to dabble in painting, but she doesn't really have any skills. She takes this dull job and she's most interested in the gossip. Even in the beauty contest, she only gets second place. You yeah. know, this, he's sort of dedicated to proving how mediocre she is. And yet he thinks she's the one who can save him. I mean, I, that line is very curious. I think it's very curious, and I think it's sort of what I mean about the spectral quality of the story. I mean, mm-hmm. how can she save him? Right. Only on some plane of poetry. Only of something that's hidden back there. I mean, look, the first sentence, you know, yeah. what does he have to say about her? She's, you know, has... She has big breasts. Big breasts, slim legs, and blue eyes. <laughs> right? Does he ever in the story say anything more positive about her? Right. You know? Yeah. And, and yet, as you say, he kind of, how can she save him then? 
you know, I think that's the strangeness of the story. But I also, I understand too, and I think we all do, that kind of fascination with the banal, especially if your life is not like that. Mm-hmm. I think too what he related to her, the narrator relates to Clara too, which is a big Bolaño theme, is desperateness. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bolaño narrator is desperate for something huge, we tend to think, right? Desperate right. for for poetry, desperate for great love. And she, as banal as she is, she's desperate for the same things. She wants art and love too. What do you think is is going on with the rats, the, her dreams of rats in the bedroom and, and her mysterious ulcer, her illnesses? I think it's part of the desperation. Yeah. I think that's kind of one of the things that gives you the feeling always of her as a, not just a fragile character, but as a doomed character. And I think the narrator has a bit of that himself, feeling himself somewhat doomed. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think some of it also comes from, I think, a poem he drew on to write this story. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's just a leap, but right. I was fascinated when uh, there, there, there's a sentence where he says, um, although I didn't want to cry, I cried like in the poem by Ruben Darío. Right. And, and that line completely fascinated me because I thought, Bolaño wouldn't mention a poem just to show that he's read the poem. You know, he's more in control as a writer than that. Yeah. He's going to re- mention a poem for a reason. Right. So... I was in Mexico City, like when I reread this, and I know a lot of poets. And I asked some of the very smartest poets I knew, like uh, Matias Rivas, who's down in Chile, who is also a press editor. He's Nicanor Parra's editor. I said, mm-hmm. Matias, what poem is this? He goes, I have no idea. I'll find out. Right? Oh, and Ruben Darío, of course, is the great, he's like Latin America's Walt Whitman. He's the great modernist poet of the late 19th century, early 20th century, and, and, and every poet. And Latin America is steeped in Darío. And then uh, through a friend, Nico, Nicolas Jose, he has the Francisco Hernandez, who's Mexico's most learned, greatest poet. Mm-hmm. And he had no idea, <laughs> you know. And I was given up. I had given up in finding You became it. a detective and, yourself. And then, yeah, well, Nico did. Nico tracked it down. He just sat down and poured read them all. The, read, yeah. <laughs> you know, and when I read the poem, I was kind of staggered by the similarities in tone and theme. And so what is the title of the, the Dario poem? The title is Cancion de Otoño en Primavera. Which means? A song of um, autumn in spring. I'll just read the first few stanzas, right? Juventud, divino tesoro, ya te vas para no volver, cuando quiero llorar, no lloro. Y a veces lloro sin querer. Youth, divine treasure. Now you're leaving to never come back. When I want to cry, I don't cry. Sometimes I cry without wanting to. As you go on, the poem develops the story of the poet's obsession with this beautiful young woman mm-hmm. who is also crazy. You know, she's puesta su continua ternura, una pasión violenta unía. And this references to her as her passion being like teeth gnawing at his heart. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she's portrayed as, as beautiful and dangerous and, and kind of crazy in the poem. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the poem, when she's become a, a phantom of his heart, in vano busque la princesa que estaba triste de esperar, la vida es dura, amarga y pesa, ya no hay princesa que cantar. Right? In vain, I looked for the... Uh, princess who was tired of waiting. Life is hard. 
bitter and heavy, and now there is no more princess to sing. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it sounds like he was really dialoguing with this poem yeah, in some way. Yeah. You know, saying, can I turn this Dario poem into a story? Into a story. You know, I'm not saying it was only that, but he mentioned the poem for a reason. And this is something Bolaño does. Everything he writes is so layered with so many references, so and you can miss them and still enjoy it. Yeah, he's, he's as literary as Borges. Yeah. That's why they love each other. That's why they don't love each other. I mean, that's why he loves him so much. That's why their so works much. love each other. That's why their <laughs> works love each other. You know, I really think he was trying, because of the Dario influence, I think he was trying to, in his own way, write like a late 19th century, almost symbolist tale, mm-hmm. you know, of, of death-haunted youth and, and mystery. That's what it most reminds me of. But with these details thrown in, like hemorrhoids. And... Yeah, hemorrhoids, modern details. Yeah, <laughs> and again, you know, his immature self, his yeah. ridiculous self, his obsessed self. Yeah. I mean, there's always black humor in Bolaño. One of the things that I, I found interesting about this story or that I thought was maybe the central point is that he spends his whole time making a case for Clara as the love of his life and setting up this, this story where we think they're going to end up together. Somehow, love is going to conquer all, and this is going to, to be proven not to have been a waste of his life. Of course, that doesn't happen. And to me, it seems that the revelation there is maybe simply that he wasn't the love of her life, and he was rather actually insignificant in her narrative. Yeah, I didn't quite feel that. I don't know yeah. why. I felt from the first sentence, oh, no, this is going to be a nightmare. You know, that nothing could possibly go right. And the mystery to me, and it is a mystery to me, is what she really was to him over time. And I think it's almost more a metaphor, a poetic conceit. You know, he was madly in love with her, Mm -hmm. you know, when he was 17. I don't doubt that at all. And yet, what is he going back for over and over again? There's something in the story that turns on his leaving her. Yeah. Her kind of comment about, I deserve the best. It's funny. That's funny coming from you. After that, when he says she should have regarded me as an enemy by now, Mm -hmm. the constant disparagement. Yeah. And, you know, the sense that he's taking something from her and he's almost warning her against himself in some strange way. But there's the sense that at the very end, when she's missing, and he keeps waiting for her to turn up at his place. As though this would prove something. This would prove that everything had been leading to this moment. Yeah. At which he would become the important person. He would become the person she goes to at this time. Yeah. And he's not. But he's already been. Yeah. You know, he walked out on her. Yeah. He's already had that chance. But he thinks he should get another one. (laughs) He thinks he should get... On some literal plane, he thinks he should get another one. You know, Clara is so ordinary... And then the most extraordinary thing she does is what she does at the end, where yeah. she just disappears. Yeah. In fact, that's the first extraordinary thing that she does. Yeah. Where, do you, where do you think she goes? I think she killed herself. Do you? Yeah. When you know she's died, he has said so. In some ways, she's finally achieved mystery. She's, she's, she's found, found her him, moment of art. She's yeah. found her something yeah. like that. You yeah. know? There's a wonderful phrase early on when she says, there's three Claras inside me. A little girl, an old elderly crone enslaved by her family. And then the real Clara, the real Clara is a young girl who just wants to get out of that city Mm -hmm. and go away. 
Again, this theme of youth. It's us, like she finally becomes the young girl who gets out of the city and vanishes. Thank you so much, Frank. It's been a huge pleasure. Francisco Goldman is the author of Say Her Name, a novel about the tragic death of his wife, and The Art of Political Murder, a nonfiction book about the killing of Bishop Juan Gerardi in Guatemala. You can subscribe to this podcast as well as to The New Yorker Out Loud and The Political Scene podcast in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.